It's been said so often it's almost trite. Burnout among nurses drags down hospitals' quality of care, hollows out the ranks of nurses, and smashes to smithereens any resilience they might have built. But just as plain as the human tragedy of burnout and attrition in this group of healthcare workers is the frankness of its remedy. What ails our nation's nurses can be solved with changes in how they are paid, an infusion of cash to support them, and policies that link nurse burnout and attrition rates to hospitals' bottom lines. That was Jane Muir, an emergency department nurse and researcher at the University of Virginia, reading from her first opinion essay, The Solution to the Wave of Nurse Resignations, Cold Hard Cash. I'll bring you our conversation after a word about STAT+. If you enjoy the First Opinion podcast, you can get even more coverage from STAT with a STAT Plus subscription. STAT Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories every day from our award-winning team. As a special thank you for listening to the podcast, you can get 10% off a STAT Plus subscription by using the code POD. That's P. O-D, all uppercase. To subscribe to Stat Plus, visit statnews.com slash subscribe and use the pod code there. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion. STAT's platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. The podcast is officially on a break until we rev up again in March and return to our weekly schedule. But I was having podcast host withdrawal symptoms, and our producer, Teresa Gaffney, desperately missed a weekly pre-production stress jolt. So we're releasing this episode in January and another in February. And we thought that talking about the nursing crisis in the U.S. was a great topic to start with. It's great to talk with you, Jane. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we're, we're the lucky ones here. So let me, let me sort of go back to the beginning. What, what prompted you or inspired you to go into nursing? Well, I was inspired to go into nursing because I had a close friend Um, who was a mentor to me in high school that I met, who unfortunately had brain cancer. And she um, received a lot of her care at Johns Hopkins. And so many of the stories that she told me about her care really centered around the nurses who were there for her and advocated for her and helped her have um, so much functional mobility in her life. So she was a marathon runner. And they really promoted her voice and advocated for her. And despite what they knew about her condition from a research and clinical perspective, she really defied the odds. And with the help of nurses on her team, she was able to do the things that she loved and wanted to do the most. And so seeing um, that example and that narrative when I was in high school really inspired me when I went on to the University of Virginia um, to transfer into the nursing school. I went to UVA initially as a Spanish language major and then halfway through transferred into nursing actually. I went for it, and it's the best decision I I really made. So it's been wonderful. You know, it's interesting. I hear so many stories that 
uh, emerge like yours, either having had an experience or having a mother had an experience with a nurse and and just the care that the nurses brought being so inspiring. Absolutely. And I think the one of the most inspiring things about nurses are, are, are that they they wear many hats. And I think you, you hear that a lot. You know, nurses not only are a voice for patients, but they can engage in that critical and clinical thinking that physicians can do. You know, they're like systems engineers, always tinkering with workflow and creative solutions to helping their patients. Um, and so I think that's why it's a very appealing career and it continues to attract um, individuals from all walks of life. It's exciting now to see the public interested in in the issues nurses are facing right now more than ever. I think at least um, with you know the short career I've had, you know, six years as a nurse, I think it's the most interest the public has had right now in terms of the challenges that we're facing from a policy perspective and a clinical practice perspective. So um, not only are people interested in going into nursing, but people are interested in talking about nursing. Do you think that's emerging because the whole concept of burnout is finally getting away just from focusing on physicians, or is it the sort of the the crisis in staffing, or is there something else that's going on that are getting people to talk about nursing right now? From a research perspective, I think when we think about burnout and who, you know, Chris, the, the study of burnout came out of the field of psychology and, you know, Herbert Freudenberger and Christina Maslock, they were these early psychology researchers looking at burnout. And so naturally they looked at burnout across several professions and specialties and healthcare and nurses specifically have always been a specific clinical group that has had disproportionately high rates of burnout. And we've known longer than I've been alive that nurses are experiencing high levels of burnout in their work. And so it is an interesting question, like why all of a sudden now are people interested in burn in nursing burnout issues? And I think it's one part, we have more platforms to talk about it outside of academic journals. You know, we can tweet about it. We can Facebook about it. And although there's like a double-edged sword to social media, I, I do think that the voice that nurses have carries on to their family members who share it. And then someone who isn't their family member sees it. And then those people go into the healthcare system and they go, uh, they go into the ER and are on a stretcher and they are hearing about, you know, we don't have any staffing on this unit. They're more attuned, the public, the patients are more attuned to, oh, wow, nurse burnout is an issue. And I, from my own work, I work in the emergency department and we don't have patients that we regularly see, right? So we have patients that are coming in and I never have the same patient twice, rarely. And patients will sit down now and I'll, you know, get them on the monitor, do their vital signs, and they'll start having a conversation with me like, how bad is, how bad is your turnover rate on this unit? How many travel nurses do you have? And I'm like, how do you even know this terminology? <laughs> like, where did you learn this? And yesterday I'm getting my nurse practitioner degree. And yesterday I had a patient who was admitted. He got discharged. He came for a follow-up. And he sat down and he was like, you know, he could have been talking about his severe illness that got him admitted, but instead he was like, you know, some of these nurses that I had in the ICU were travel nurses and we really need to figure out a way to retain them because they were really great. Hmm. And if we just kept those nurses, maybe we could pay them more. They were phenomenal. And I'm like, how do you even know, you know, you clearly had a conversation with this nurse. So personally, as someone who researches burnout in the healthcare work environment, I'm so excited that the public is engaged in this conversation because I think 
historically, it's been very difficult for nurses to get change, to get traction with this issue. And I do feel like um, one of the ways we're going to get traction is by getting the public's pull, getting them to demand, we don't want to get care in these, in these work environments, in these conditions. So you wrote that, I'm quoting here, the tsunami of interest in travel nursing is the direct result of nurses feeling undervalued by their home hospitals. Can you explain that? Yes, I think that for several years before the pandemic and maybe decades before, nurses have increasingly felt undervalued in the work that they do, especially in the inpatient setting. Um, Before the pandemic hit, we had nurses that were working alongside travel nurses. And I think um, from purely financial and economic terms, you have, for example, and this is pre-pandemic times, you have a nurse that has dedicated six plus years to a unit. They are the charge nurse. They are precepting two nurses a week, They are on a committee advocating for improving quality, improving a system. They are, they hold so much human capital and expertise, you know, which is sort of invisible. You don't really see that. You don't really see this person under, this is the person that understands all of our policies. This is the person who knows how to precept. This is the person that is informally training any resident that comes through this unit. Yet they're working alongside a traveler that can make two to three times their pay. And so Um, I think building up to the pandemic, that was really taking a mental toll on nurses. So hold up, let me get this straight. I don't get a a wage increase for everything that's conveniently invisible that I'm doing here, but this person can walk in with no uh, dedication to the culture or understanding of policy or workflow, and they can just make, you know, X amount more than me. And I think that is particularly devaluing for nurses. And I still think that regardless of if travel nurses are on the unit, I think that from a workload perspective, there are aspects of being a nurse that feel uh, like you're not valued. A lot of invisible burdens that you take on. Pre-pandemic, these aspects were building up. And then when the pandemic hit, it was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. And quite frankly, why would you stay in those working conditions? Why would you stay where your work your, your break room has been taken away. Your breaks have been taken away. Your colleagues have been taken away. They've left. Um, and when you reach that point, you know, you have to advocate for yourself. You have to go, you have to seek out some, some place that's going to support you. And if you're going to be forced to work under poor working conditions, I, I truly think that nurses are willing to work under those conditions if they are getting um, sufficient pay for it, for it. You know, you used a lovely phrase in your essay to describe healthcare. You called it the team-based dance. Um, teams, uh, dancers usually work best when they know each other and they've been working together for a long time. So how does the travel nurse thing affect patient care? In an emergency room, on a floor? Travel nursing really breaks down any sort of team cohesion that you that you have. I think when I was doing research for my dissertation, looking at the culture of burnout in emergency department settings, uh, one piece of data that came out was every shift feels like a pickup football game. And I just loved how well that depicted the team-based dance that is healthcare. It's not a dance. It's a pickup game. It's every day showing up and going, so who are you again? Okay, you're going to be doing CPR with me 
halfway through the shift or who are you again? Okay. I'm going to trust you to know how to get blood and do a blood transfusion on a patient. That's really scary. And I think that when we think about the value concept, the first question that you asked me, I think when you don't know your team, you walk into every shift subconsciously, very fearful, and you don't feel very valued and safe in those conditions. And, And that's what nurses mean when they don't feel safe with burnout And the turnover, that's the compromise of the team-based care is every day people have no knowledge of of their teammates. They have no knowledge of uh, the policies of how people work. And it's quite honestly, very inefficient. You know, we have the technology devices that help us call people on our unit. And most of the time, many nurses don't really know who am I calling for, for help. Imagine being in a scenario where a patient is declining and all of a sudden you need help. I mean, we thankfully have these code buttons that you can click, but it's very scary to know, to not really know someone who you can trust to come in and help you. Um, and from my own personal experiences, I've, I recently have been working in the emergency department and having sort of, and, and this has been out in the press recently, is violence between patients and clinicians and being in a setting where I don't feel safe with a patient. And I've worked at the same institution for six years. And I'm not only am I scared of it, you know, some violence that is being imparted upon me, but I'm also scared because I don't know who to ask for, for help. I mean, it's in every scenario, great to ask for, you know, help, you know, someone come in, but it's not um, ideal to not know who can step in and help you or to, you know, subconsciously think, you know, if I'm in a compromised position, does my team know that to check in on me and to help? And when we have strong teams, our care is just that it's team-based. It's a patient comes in and everyone swarms in as a team to help check them in. And when it's not team-based, everyone is sort of every man for themselves. They're in a room by themselves. They're responsible for checking in the patient and doing everything by themselves and knowing the policies and the workflow. And again, that goes back into inefficiency. And so that has really drawn me to the economic aspects of nurse burnout, where um, the continuous turnover and burnout is very inefficient. I think we spend more time taking care of our, you know, you know, getting tasks done. I think there are more errors. Well, we know from the from research in this area, there are more errors. Um, there are poor outcomes for patients. Um, so that link between burnout and the, the breakdown of team care has negative implications for patient care. Trust is so essential to to healthcare. I mean, you you really have to know who you're working with, and it, it seems to me during the pandemic, we've on TV, you see so many pictures of a nurse going into a room and it's the nurse and the patient, the doctors outside often writing orders or, or doing things. And it's really the, the nurse and the patient that that essential dynamic that um, I think people have been seeing a lot of on, you know, the the, the little TV news fillers you know, that, that, that you see, but the, the visual is a nurse going into a room, which I think is a very powerful uh, image. Absolutely. And, um, there are many narratives in the beginning of the pandemic of nurses, especially in the ICU setting, going in and being the sole clinician that is going in to listen to heart sounds and breath sounds and coming out to report or going on the telemedicine camera and saying, you know, I, I hear X, Y, and Z on my exam. I am truly a frontline worker. I'm, I'm always the one that's going to be going in. You know, I don't have the luxury of being able to not go in to see a patient or put myself at risk with, of COVID. Um, and so 
the combination of that reality with nurses, uh, the pay discrepancy between their position and a travel nurse that comes in has really forced nurses to reevaluate where they want to work. I think at this point, nurses and the broader healthcare professional group, we are moving towards being a, a patient group of our own from the physical um, toll that, that working in these conditions is taking on us. So not everybody has the opportunity or the wherewithal to to sign out and become a travel nurse. Is that creating disparities among the healthcare workforce? Absolutely. I think when we think of people that have the ability or the privilege to leave and go be a travel nurse, I think inherently I wonder what is the disproportionate or inequitable workload that the ones that stay inherent. And I also want to clarify that in many cases, nurses that go to travel, they don't, they didn't want to have to do that. They felt that their, however, they felt that their working conditions forced them to do that. Many nurses would, in a perfect world, they would love to stay at their institution with people that they're familiar with and patients they're familiar with and the culture they're familiar with. But many of them tell me, I want to stay, but I can't in these conditions. And so I will go travel under these poor conditions if I'm being paid. If I if you're paying me enough, I'm happy to work that. If you're going to make me come to work and be sick, I will work if I'm getting paid, you know, a ridiculous sum of money. I'm sorry, how ridiculous are, are we talking about? I've heard everywhere from double to triple to quadruple. Are those any of those in the ballpark? Yeah, absolutely. I would say triple is the average that I've heard. Wow. Someone who's um, a nurse at a hospital in her own institution maybe is making $35 an hour and she could go and be a travel nurse for more than $100 an hour. Yes. Yikes. That's quite a powerful incentive. And I think I think that that is a positive, but it's also a con from an identity perspective. I think that nurses, um, they enter into nursing and, and they have their specialty training or they get acclimated to a unit where they work and that's their home. That's what they know. And then because the working conditions are so challenging, they move on to different units and they don't have that investment in the specialty or, or in that culture. And that's a that's a very challenging reality because nurses go into this profession for the very reasons I mentioned in the beginning. They're passionate about the patients. They're passionate about the team. And when that's not there, um, it's a difficult reality from a from a identity perspective. So let's talk about solutions for a second. And you offered some. How do how do hospitals, how do medical centers, um, doctors' offices retain nurses? And you offered three solutions. One is change how nurses are paid, bring in some cash to support the work they're doing, and policies that link nurse burnout and attrition rates to hospital bottom lines. So the first two are pretty straightforward. Talk to me about that third one, which I think is really interesting. From a quality perspective and in, in some of our healthcare structures, the way healthcare systems are structured, um, healthcare systems are really encouraged from a hospital financial reimbursement perspective to maintain vigilance and ensuring that patients don't fall, that they don't develop pressure ulcers. And these are called quality metrics. 
And as bedside nurses, our roles are really focused on ensuring that these poor outcomes do not occur. So to provide an example, as a bedside nurse in the emergency department, when a patient checks in and I'm in triage, I do an assessment to make sure that they are not a fall risk. And if they are a fall risk, they've fallen recently, um, maybe they have some mental status changes that put them at risk of falling, I, I do some interventions to ensure that they do not fall. I put a wristband on them. I bring them into the room and put up side, a side rail to make sure that they do not fall. I turn on an alarm. I check on them every X amount of time as a, you know, based on evidence that we know can help prevent falls with pressure ulcers. I'm checking a patient's skin every X amount of time throughout my shift. I am cleaning the site. I am calling report and letting the next nurse know I'm applying this in that dressing. So as a nurse, we are, and dis, a disproportionate amount of Nurses' work is dedicated to ensuring these quality metrics are are um, stable and not elevated. So compared to, you know, I would argue other clinician groups, our role is specifically garnered to ensure that these quality metrics advance. And so, I think among the nursing nursing groups, we feel, you know, we are we are we are the central group responsible for ensuring that these hospitals get safe quality metrics and then in turn financial reimbursement. It's both. For quality, because, you know, the Joint Commission and others that are looking at hospital accreditation are looking at those measures. But it, it's also part of the bottom line, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, it, it's ensuring that hospitals can can receive the financial reimbursement so that they can continue to provide the services that they want to provide, so that they can continue to have favorable hospital ratings so that services can continue to come to their hospital so that they can be sponsored to advance their services, to bring in more patients, to bring in uh, more profit for the healthcare organization. You know, much of this nurse's quality work is, is tied to that bottom line. And so I think an important discussion to have now is how, if we know that burnout is associated with these poor outcomes, so falls and um, errors, adverse events, so that it's associated with these poor, poor quality metrics, then as healthcare organizations, we need to, to establish some rigorous regula- regulations to make sure that healthcare organizations are ensuring that the nurses can do their jobs optimally. And I think there's been some interesting discussions around you know, can we make the insurer insurance of well-being among clinicians a part of the quality, a part of quality metrics or a part of some measurement system that we can hold healthcare organizations accountable for, given that it has so many financial repercussions? In terms of solutions and interventions, I look at it as a pie. I don't think there's going to ever be one slam dunk solution to solving the issue of burnout and turnover, but I do think that we need to start ensuring some type of measurement or accountability to healthcare organizations to ensure that their clinicians can optimally do their job. Because as it stands right now, it's very convenient to have nurses not stay. Um, you, you don't have to oftentimes um, fund their benefits. You don't have to, you're not accountable to making sure they go up a clinical ladder and stay for a long time and maybe demand more pay. Um, there can be some interesting reasons why healthcare organizations don't want to retain nurses. And quite frankly, I think that one way we can get there is by having more nurses in those leadership positions because healthcare leaders are disproportionately physicians or non, non-nurse leaders. And nursing burnout has been an area of research longer, so over 20, like over 30 years. So let's bring those, those experts to the table, given that 
uh, nurse burnout has been uh, researched significantly prior to the pandemic. That was a very long response. <laughs> what What would you say, let's say you're on a shift one day working with a nurse and the nurse says, you know, I'm really burned out and I don't know what to do. What sort of advice would you have for somebody like that? Hmm, that's a good question. It's tricky because we don't want to give more work to nurses when they say they're burned out. So I'm burned out in this environment. Okay, well, you're going to help us solve the, the problem <laughs> with it. You're going to be the one that yeah. fixes this workflow. And so I think that sort of goes back to we need to, over time, be bringing nurses into leadership positions in the first place because a lot of the workflow configuration disproportionately puts these invisible burdens on nurses. And then when they are burned out by them, the solution is, okay, well, now let's bring you in to help fix this. When it, way upstream, we could have avoided some of these inefficiencies by having nurses at the table. So to answer your question, I would say finding ways that um, nurses can safely disclose their experiences on their unit to somebody. Um, and then seeing how, you know, in a way that doesn't add more work to their, to their daily tasks, how workflows can be reconfigured, or if there are, um, organ, if there are committees within healthcare systems that we can refer nurses to without that feeling like a stigma, I think that's also helpful. Um, and I, one th important thing that I want to say is, I feel like there is, um, I feel like the term resiliency has really been numbed down in this pandemic, you know, stop shoving resiliency down our throats or mindfulness. And I think that when we look at burnout solutions, there is a whole pie of solutions. And one of them, a large piece of the pie is systemic change. And there are slivers of the pie that relate to how we can individually cope with our experiences on our unit. I do not think that they are the primary things, solutions that need to, to, to be driven by healthcare systems. But I do think there is a place for committees in healthcare systems where we can refer clinicians when they feel occupational stress, burnout, PTSD. These are all things that are happening right now. And we need to work towards maintaining those committees and destigmatizing what it means to take a break on your shift, um, ask for help. For goodness sake, most nurses, you know, in the work that I've done at my own organization, we, we work to do these like in the moment solutions to help nurses. Hey, here is a, a mobile break that we're going to give you. You don't have a, you don't have a break room on your unit. So we're going to bring it to you. No matter what we do to help nurses restore on their unit right now, they feel guilt for taking care of themselves and leaving their, their teammates or leaving their patients. And so I think there's a lot of work that we need to do in terms of destigmatizing, taking a break in the healthcare work environment and taking the time to restore yourself. And so all that is to say within the large piece of addressing clinician burnout, a big chunk of that is the systemic part. And we also need to be addressing, you know, the personal coping that nurses do both on their units and outside of the unit. So you, uh, we hear a lot about the physician scientist. And so I'm so delighted to hear about, um, and I, I hope that you and your colleagues like you bring the nurse scientist up to that same level of recognition. And I hope you're Next venture is everything you're looking for. Yes, I'm excited about that too. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer and Rick Burke is the executive producer. 
I'd love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which first opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. Everyone who makes this podcast, aka all three of us, have like very close immediate family who are nurses. So it's it's very important to us. I, w- <laughs> I, w- I was gonna uh, I was gonna bring that up. You you could have seen a lot of this going on as you were saying things because we all have uh, very close connections to nurses. Oh, good. I sometimes I'm a little worried. I word vomit, and I'm like, oh god, I hope that's relatable. Yeah, that was no, awesome. definitely. Yeah. Awesome.